0: Hi, I'm Amy Silverman, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This month's theme, My Pet. First up, Will Heather Cronrath join the Wheaton Terrier Mafia? Find out in, Are You Serious?
1: I am a goofy dog person. I have always been a goofy dog person. I was raised in a goofy dog person home. I once had a friend said to me, how come I never knew you were a goofy dog person? And I said, because I didn't have a dog. Our first pet was a brown miniature poodle. She was purchased in New York City. My mother and her friend, Eddie Holmes, a character actor, went uptown to get the dog, and then they sneaked her onto the subway. My mother said, Eddie, don't draw attention to me on the train, they'll kick us off. He smiled and nodded. Once the train was moving, he proceeded to walk up and down the car, pointing to my mother and asking people to put a name for the puppy in his hat. When they reached their Brooklyn Heights stop, Eddie said, hey, let's go get a martini and pick a name for the puppy. My mother, never a drinker, said, let's name the dog Martini and go home. And so it was. That dog was followed by another brown poodle of the same name, so you could say that I lived a double martini childhood. (laughs) For the next 30 years, I was dog adjacent. Friends had dogs, my family had dogs, I had no dogs. It was a good policy and perhaps one I could have stuck with. My only problem is that when I see a cute dog or puppy, I have the same reaction. Many women do upon seeing a newborn. My milk lets down, and I get puppy fever. <laughs> While I grew up a poodle person, I had developed an odd attraction to soft-coated wheaten terriers. They were fluffy, goofy, and didn't shed. I don't do shedding. I'd seen one at a dog show. Then I found out what they cost, and I decided I could continue living without a dog. In 1997, I tagged along with a girlfriend as she stopped by a friend's home. As we got out of the car, I saw a bundle of Wheaton-colored fur go flashing past me. I blurted out, Oh, my God, it's a soft-coated Wheaton Terrier. (laughs) She said, Yes, as she ran past us. Do you want it? (laughs) Sure. But she was only kidding. Until four years later, when that same dog, Trigo, became mine. Trigo hated children. Something I've been known to admire. (laughs) Resistance was broken, and I had a dog with which to be goofy. Trigo brightened our home for the two and a half brief months we had her before a congenital heart defect took her life the day after the 2000 election. I called the Wheaton Rescue. I explained that I had taken in a Wheaton, it had died, and since I understood the breed, I was in the market for another. They were very trendy in those days and had supplanted the poodle as the go-to hypoallergenic dog. They were expensive and hard to find, and they had many health issues. People would buy them, and then they would realize they had a terrier and decide that their lives were not destined for terrier terrain. After a long lecture from the woman about the health issues and getting a rescue could be a pig in a poke, In its situation, the lady asked a few questions about the dog I had recently lost. After my description, she blurted out, Are you talking about Trigo? (laughs) This is when I learned that the Wheaton Mafia existed. (laughs) They could know things that were impossible to know. But somehow, they had their finger on the pulse of all purebred, accepted Wheatons. When I mumbled, well, yes, her whole demeanor changed, and I then listened to a litany of sins that the original owner's head, from her perspective, rained down upon poor Trigo. Well, I'm glad she had a good and loving last two months. She deserved it. I'll see what I can do. That was December. In early January, I received a call asking if I would be willing to take on a dog that might need lifelong medicine. I said, sure. That is how Tiffy, or Champion and Over Wish Upon a Star, came into my life. She was a five-year-old bitch who had been getting ready for her final litter when she was administered bad rabies vaccine and had begun to seize. The solution was having her spayed, giving her seizure meds, and loving her. I could do all three things, It's also how I got to meet the delightful, funny, and amazing Jackie Gottlieb, one of the doyens of the Wheaton world. We met at the Neurological Vets in Phoenix. Jackie was a stylish, petite, very petite, septuagenarian. She was one of the people responsible for getting Wheatons recognized by the AKC. I was with royalty, or was I with the Capo de Tutti Capo? of the Wheaton Mafia. (laughs) Tiffy was brought out and I mentioned how small she was. She is perfect. (laughs) Trigo must have been huge. I chuckled and commented that we liked big blonde girls at my house. I was approved. Shortly thereafter, I made a bad grooming mistake and I took Tiffy to a place where they cut off the fall that was over her eyes. Within a week I received a phone call from Sedona. It was Jackie. I hear you cut Tiffy's fall off. You know it's not good for their eyes. I explained my grooming error and I was given the name of the right groomer. The Wheaton Mafia has eyes everywhere. (laughs) Tiffy brought dog shows and Wheaton puppy meets into our lives. It was at one of these in April 2001 that I first saw him, Tiger. He was about 16 weeks old, and Jackie had just acquired him for her breeding line. He was a continental or European Wheaton. They're known for their good bone structure and their robust coats. (laughs) He was adorable. He was, next time we saw him, he was six months old, and he was in an outdoor kennel with another boy. And he was leaping up, And down and up and down and up and down and my husband said who would want to own that (laughs) turns out we would (laughs) the Wheaton Mafia stepped in again Tiger when Tiger was two Jackie was told that I wanted him I was told that Jackie wanted to give him to me because she felt his personality deserved a home Neither of us had said anything, but we had an understanding. She would own his testicles, and we would have his heart. I leapt at the chance, so in January 2003, a big furry bundle of energy arrived and began to mark his territory on pretty much every piece of furniture I owned. I didn't care, I just wandered about with a bottle of cleaner and a towel. He was an instinctual herder, and for some reason chose my two most powerful girlfriends to herd, both of them lawyers from Berkeley. (laughs) When they visited, he would nip at their heels, attempting to point them in the right direction. They were startled, charmed, and I found surprisingly compliant. (laughs) The world of dog breeding is an unusual world. I learned and saw things I had never hoped to experience. My first dive into the deep end was at a dog show. Jackie requested that I take Tiger to the collection tent. Knowing nothing, I hurried along, thinking I would hand him off to some person. Instead, I found myself standing, holding his leash, while an in heat bulldog bitch was brought in for his sniffing enjoyment, and a woman began collecting. She remarked he was easy because most Wheatons will not give it up for anything but a Wheaton in heat. During our second collection the following year, I couldn't help myself and I asked, What exactly did you tell your high school guidance counselor you wanted to do for a living? And she said, Well, luckily I still wanted to be a vet tech then. I said, What do you tell people you do for a living? She said, well, it's not a first date kind of thing. But if I'm at a party and someone asks, I just tell people I'm in collections. And they don't want to ask anymore for fear I'll be calling about their credit cards. The process requires that the females be flown or driven in from all over the United States. You meet at a vet's office for the event, which must occur three times over a five-day period. The f- females are brought in, there's a quick sniff and an attempt, but if the girl snaps or snarls, they often will say, not going to work, we'll have to do artificial. One time, early on, I was had to be out of town for two of the visits. My good friend Patty offered to take him, after asking cautiously, in her good Catholic girl sort of way, you don't have to go in, do you? And I said, not always knowing full well it was always. <laughs> that afternoon of the first cover, I received a call. Well, I hope you're happy. <laughs> I have never begged for sex in my life, but I begged today. I begged for him. They were so quick to say no. They came. I said, they just bet for heaven's sakes. Give them a few minutes. He's really good at this. I know, he's practiced on my leg. So they backed off, and let me just tell you, Heather, he is one happy boy. His puppies were cute, and several went on to be champions. I didn't mind being his pimp, but his crying for a week afterwards did get to be a bit much over time. When he was about five, they stopped using him. In the dog world, the boys are blamed if it's a bad litter, and there had been two litters with complaints. He lived to be nearly 14, God love him, he never stopped trying when he saw a cute girl. But mostly he was content to just be the biggest love muffin in our lives. Thanks for the education and laughter. Champion Andover Heatherstone, are you serious?
0: That was Heather Cronrath. Next, Nate Nichols gets catty in Mexico with Bad Hombre.
2: Since I was in high school, my family has taken near-annual trips to Mexico with my best friend Campbell's family. His mom, Jackie, was born and raised in Leon, Guanajuato. When her parents divorced, her father's alimony was to build her mother, Maria, a rustic bed and breakfast in a small pueblo in Jalisco called La Manzanilla. Nestled between the jungle and the Pacific Ocean, the town of 2000 is friendly and sleepy pacified by the constant breeze. La Casa de Maria, as the small inn is known, has been a staple of our trip each year. We always bring back souvenirs, powdered mole, art, replica Mayan figurines, and as I got older, tequila. However, last year at New Year's, our collecting graduated to arguably its most impractical height, live animals. Being in the jungle, La Manzanilla is full of life. One year, the bugs were so pervasive, one of our less hardy travel companions threatened to book an early flight back to her Arcadia mansion just to escape. The owner of a small pizza parlor keeps a capybara, the world's largest rodent, as a pet in a small enclosure behind his restaurant. Side note, Mexican pizza is nothing like Italian pizza, or what Taco Bell has dubbed a Mexican pizza, and somehow manages to fall short of both. However... (laughs) Watching a capybara pick up and drink a beer straight from the bottle while standing on its hind legs does make this particular pizza parlor worth a visit. (laughs) The epicenter of all this life is a nature preserve of mangroves. Similar to a cypress tree, the mangroves grow out of what is is essentially a swamp or bayou. The area is teeming with birds, fish, and hundreds of crocodiles. The man who oversees the preserve, Premi, is a friend of the family. On our first visit, he delighted in explaining how before the preserve was fenced in, crocodiles used to stole, stroll down the main street in town or wander the beaches, which came as quite a surprise to sunbathing tourists. Premi lost part of his arm in a car accident as a child, but he likes to tell tourists and newcomers that it was a brush with a crocodile. <laughs> Just as the fish and birds lay their eggs in mangroves, setting the stage for new life, so too began the life of what I've dubbed my Mexican refugee cat. The majority of our New Year's trip was spent in the Palapa, a large shade structure with a roof made from intricately woven palm fronds. It's filled with hammocks and lounge chairs, and we spent the days napping, reading, playing cornhole, and enjoying beers while watching the water. On our fourth or fifth day, we had an unexpected visitor. At first, we just heard a soft mewing. Then, through the fence from the adjoining Palapa, emerged a newborn kitten, no more than six weeks old. He was very shy at first, darting back through the fence any time one of our group approached. Eventually, we shared one of our tuna fish sandwiches and made a friend for life. The group next door explained that they had been walking back to the beach past the crocodile preserve when they saw the kitten inside, apparently thrown over intentionally. They found a gap in the fence and were able to pluck the kitten out and save him from becoming an appetizer. Since then, they had been caring for him, giving him milk, and letting him sleep on their deck. They were about to move on to their next destination and weren't sure they would be able to bring the kitten with them. We played with the cat on the beach for the next few days. He loved to chase strings, sample ceviche, and nap with us in our hammocks. Then the group next door moved on, and the cat was still there, solo, with no one to care for him. We decided that he shouldn't stay on the beach alone at night. Unfortunately, my my friend's aunt didn't allow any animals other than her own dogs in the inn. My mother and I smuggled the cat into the house in a cloth tote bag. Luckily, our room was off to one side, so we didn't have to pass the main house with our inexplicably meowing bag. (laughs) A cardboard box full of beach sand was his litter box, and we were able to find some cat kibble at a local store. It took him a day or two to warm up to his new surroundings. Hard floors, no ocean sounds, fewer places to run and hide. One of the first nights he was there, the sight of his own reflection in a mirror had him terrified for an hour. Then he started to get a little too comfortable. I came back to the room and found him hanging six feet in the air, claws dug into the metal screen on the window, crying. It wasn't going to be possible to keep this cat's presence a secret much longer. Eventually, the girls from across the street who cleaned the rooms were our downfall. They almost let him escape, and the commotion made his presence known to everyone. Luckily, my friend's sister, Carson, was able to persuade her aunt to take pity on the cat and let him stay. We took him to the town's only vet for a checkup. The large, dusty office had garage doors to accommodate horses, one of the main means of transportation in town. The kitten was entranced by a cage full of chickens out front. When the time came to get his first shots, I had to hold him while he howled in pain, although I think he hated the worm pill that they forced down his throat even more. A day or two later, while we were all enjoying the warm sun on the patio, my friend's sister decided she wanted to give the cat a chance to enjoy some time outside. It was an innocent enough thought but it led to the loss of the cat's second of nine lives. One of the dogs that lived in the house burst through the screen door and grabbed the cat in its jaws. Carson leapt into the fray, screaming and crying, trying to separate the two. She saved the cat, but one of the dog's teeth went through her thumbnail. The cat puffed up to twice his size, like a pufferfish, every hair on end. Miraculously, he was unharmed, except for a slight limp. As the end of our trip grew near we began to think about how we were going to get the cat back on an airplane to the United States. The cloth bag we brought him to the house in didn't seem like it would pass muster with the airline, and the vet in town didn't have any type of carrier. I went to Manzanillo, the biggest town in the area, with Jackie. After visiting several stores and finding nothing, we were running out of options. Finally, we went to Soriana, basically a Mexican target. We went up and down the aisles until we found the pet section, Amongst the disorganized piles of merchandise, including a can of wet dog food that had somehow been opened and dumped out, I spied the last pet carrier left in the store on the very top shelf. It didn't have a door. After asking three employees to bring us a ladder, one refused to hang up a personal phone call and two never returned, Jackie grabbed a broom and began scraping the tops of the shelves in search of the missing part. No luck. We took the doorless carrier to the checkout. After explaining our less-than-stellar customer service experience and the defective quality of the merchandise, an argument in Spanish ensued between Jackie and the manager. I speak enough Spanish to be conversational, but this argument was so fast and loud that I was lost. I don't know that I've ever felt like more of a gringo than I did as a hapless bystander in front of a growing audience of employees and customers. In the end, we paid full price for the carrier without a door. As we left, Jackie turned to me and said, this is why I left Mexico. The morning of our departure, we put the cat in the carrier, wrapped some mesh around the front, and secured the whole thing with duct tape. Not the most elegant solution, but the cat made it back on the plane. He passed through customs no problem and was off to his new home in Los Angeles with Carson. She had taken an instant liking to the kitten. The only problem was that she knew her boyfriend wanted a dog, and she had already adopted one cat without his permission. After a week-long trial, the cat hadn't grown on the boyfriend, and I got the call that he was coming to live with me. For the first time in my life, I was going to be a dad. (laughs) The first order of business was giving him a name. Carson wanted to call him Coco, an homage to his origin story, plucked from the jaws of a Coco However, my dad pointed out that the cat had swagger and confidence more along the lines of LeBron James. I went with Killer Mike. The human Killer Mike is half of one of my favorite rap groups, Run the Jewels, and it seemed like a better fit. Little did I know, the cat would take his name literally. Life with Killer Mike hasn't been a cakewalk. Most of the time, he's sweet and docile, but then he flips a switch, and it's like he's back fighting for his life with the crocodiles. He has a penchant for sneak attacks, emphasis on attack, that includes scratching and actually sinking in his teeth. From what I've read online, cats that are weaned too early, raised alone, and have experienced trauma are more likely to attack their owners. (laughs) My mom and a coworker independently sent me an article that said house, house cats really do want to kill their owners and would if they were big enough. I'd like to believe Killer Mike doesn't actually want to murder me, despite the increasing number of scars on my arms, legs, and face. I couldn't imagine coming home and not finding him waiting for me. I hope he remembers we saved him twice and spares me for that kindness and that our future holds more snuggling than bloodletting.
0: That was Nate Nichols. Now, buckle up your dogs for a ride with the unexpectedly maternal Becky Bartkowski. This is Tea for Two.
3: I'm not the sort of person with dog mom in her Insta bio. When it comes to dog momming, I prefer to use the show don't tell method. By which I mean, I post about my two pups all the damn time. (laughs) Walks, uneventful trips to the vet, and the near constant lounging in between. Watson is the blonde, feisty, borderline dickhead, Chihuahua Terrier, who is way too smart for his own good. And then there's Dinah the sweet, white, and brown speckled doofus of unknown provenance with at least a dozen nicknames, including Daughter. (laughs) You'll see them featured prominently in my feed with (laughs) captions like, Yes, my son models. And (laughs) Baby Girl with hashtag no filter. (laughs) I know that having dogs is not the same as having babies, obviously. They're not people, agreed. But the trick of it is that my dogs are my people, right alongside my mom, my sister, and my husband, Jason. They're the ones I check in on every day, my most messaged, texted, and DM'd. Or at least the four-legged ones would be if science got its life together and finally gave us the dog cell phones we deserve. I've cried to them and held them tight, confided in them, and built a home that wouldn't be right without them. They're my family. So when Watson and Dinah poisoned themselves one Saturday while my husband and I jam-packed our weekend with a music festival and a wedding of two dear friends, it was traumatic. The thing about counting dogs as somewhat equitable family members is that not everybody is exactly on board. As luck would have it, my mom and my mother-in-law have taken to calling Watson and Dinah their grand dogs and I may or may not have received for Christmas the emblazoned Joanne's frame to prove it. (laughs) On the less thrilled end of the spectrum, is my grandma-in-law, a woman I love dearly because she is me in 40-ish years. A shit-talking, wine-drinking badass. <laughs> we get along spectacularly, but I digress. She wants great-grandkids of the human variety and tends to raise the issue at family gatherings Birthdays, Christmas, Mother's Day, Thanksgiving. This might sound malicious. It is mostly not. And besides, I can fend for myself. I've developed different ways of dodging the question, diverting the attention, and attempting to shame her and others into not asking me about my vagina at the dinner table. There's the classic I borrowed from my late paternal grandmother, what do you care? The faux chill demand for placation, relax. The mean things I leave inside my head, I will, when name redacted here because this is really mean, does. Then there are the actual reasons. I demand a lot from myself at work and outside of it. So does my husband. I love having money to blow on serums. (laughs) Um, As a type A former Girl Scout, current editor, and full-time control freak, I'm really not great with deviations from my plans, even if those plans include staying in bed all day. Additionally, I am frightened at the prospect of resembling a small home, but more important than the fear of my arms resembling those of a linebacker is this. I haven't felt that feeling, the one that compels you, the one where you must, that to the core desire, need to be a parent. I haven't had it, not yet anyway. Plus, sorry, have you seen how cute my dogs are? (laughs) It's something I was taking for granted that weekend, running to and from Arcosanti with short pit stops in between to feed the dogs and let them outside. So tapped out from socializing, hours in the car, and generally doing the most, Jason and I came home to two completely wired dogs, and piles of what looked like blackish wet earth dotting the woven aqua rug in the kitchen of our 1950s ranch home. Now, why dogs can only seem to puke on rugs, as opposed to, say, the perfectly good hardwood floor or stained concrete but a step away, I will never know. But 100 times out of 100, my dogs prefer to upchuck on blankets, rugs, or beds before they consider any alternatives. (laughs) That Saturday, they had gotten into something, which isn't unprecedented, especially for Watson, who lives his life one sly side bite at a time. He's stolen pieces of pizza hopped onto the kitchen counter for cheese, and he once attempted to eat a whole bag of dog food. He's ambitious, and I respect that. (laughs) Or at least I did, until he and Dinah looked like they were reenacting Beatlemania in my kitchen. They maniacally chased some untouchable thing, their eyes wild, tongues loose, and panting. I went to their beds to see what evidence remained of their escapades, and I spotted it. A gold crinkled foil plastic bag that previously held loose black tea leaves. People in the middle of the dog lover and tea drinker Venn diagram know why that's bad. (laughs) Black tea has caffeine, and caffeine is poisonous for dogs. It can be fatal. I let them outside, to see if their excess energy would dissipate after a few laps around the yard. Maybe they could jog it out of their system. Their hearts were racing, but maybe this wasn't a complete end-of-the-world, unpredicted scenario that Jason and I had to deal with, you know, at midnight on a Saturday. Wrong. One call to poison control, and it was clear we had to go to the vet. Hoping against hope... I called my regular veterinarian Josh, he wears flip-flops, and is the one person on earth who has a lifetime pass for such a fashion infraction. (laughs) He calls me my dog's mom, and it is somehow deeply sweet instead of unbelievably grating. He is supremely chill, the kind of guy who says, stay out of trouble until next year's checkup. But duh. Josh was not available for business in the middle of the night, so we found an emergency pet hospital nearby. We hopped in the car and prayed, please no more puke, please no more puke. Wracked with guilt and honestly preparing for the worst at this strip mall clinic, I did what Shirley MacLaine taught me to in Sharm's of Endearment. I turned on the staff. I was completely pissed off. Not at my dogs, mind you, but at every stupid question the staffers asked. How much tea did they eat? How would I know? Do you have the bag of tea? Why would I? (laughs) But could you estimate how much they ate? I could not begin to know. I was apparently so unhelpful that they had to call Animal Poison Control to talk through the situation as if somehow the woman I spoke with earlier had extracted these answers from me and then I had gone into a fugue state forgetting that I actually had calculated the number of ounces of tea my dogs ate by, I don't know, measuring their individual barf piles. More infuriating still, the staff didn't seem like they were really in a rush to deal with my, of course, now miraculously calmer pups. And if they weren't extremely worried, it meant one of two things. Either this wasn't actually a big life-threatening deal, or they are terrible at their jobs. As someone with more faith in dogs than humans, I chose option two. And I kept asking myself a set of questions. Why did you neglect your dogs like this? How could you let this happen? What kind of mother? A thing you should know about emergency vets, they are very upsetting places to spend time. During our stay in the waiting room, a teenage girl and her sister walked in uncontrollably crying. They were saying goodbye to their own small dog, an old ball of fluff who lay bleary-eyed on a well-worn bed. Other pet owners called in with problems and were greeted with questions as annoying as as, as the ones I'd attempted to answer. Also, there was a dog who had eaten a bunch of meth. Now, a friend of mine recently mentioned to me that there are times when highly-trained drug-sniffing dogs ingest illicit substances. And while I think this is a very sweet notion, the vibe of this particular emergency pet care facility was very much not that highly-trained animals would come there. But the real takeaway is I'm, I'm not the worst pet parent here. time stretched, and it shrank in the oddest ways. Like we were waiting for an eternity, and then no time at all. And in the end, what did we walk away with? A recommendation to buy some Pepsid AC, directions for monitoring heart rates, and the knowledge that even if I didn't feel 700% prepared for something, I'd figure it out. We would. So Jason and I loaded into the car, buckling the dogs in with their tiny little seatbelt attachments. I texted my mom and sister on the way home. Hey, I don't think we can do brunch, I wrote, looking toward a few more hours of darkness punctuated by a regular alarm that would awaken me so I could hold my hand under each dog's armpit and count the number of times their hearts beat in thirty-second spans. It was Mother's Day.
0: Becky Bartkowski. Someone's getting tied up in knots in Malcriados by Marisa Hambleton
4: Qué chingaos hicieron! I yelled at the boys looked around and expected to spot my dad Jonathan my son and I lived with him my nephew David was visiting us in El Paso from Arizona for a couple of weeks the boys were fond of their summer visits and spending the day with grandpa while I was at work I came home that day to find Jonathan and David respectively eight and seven tied upside down, one to each leg of the aluminum swing set. (laughs) Our dog, Curtis, pouncing around, licking each of their faces. (laughs) Curtis was hyperactive, naughty, and misbehaved consistently. Digging under the fence, getting into the plants, chewing up the garden hose, peeing on the car tires, He was unruly in every way a Springer Spaniel could be. I had imagined life going so differently. Coming home to yet another crisis, no matter how minor, never felt normal, even if it was a regular occurrence. Being a single mom, living with my dad, and needing his help wasn't exactly the plan I had for my future. My dad's own stories about being incorrigible resonated in that instant. The story about when the nuns at the Catholic school had had enough of his shenanigans and sent him down to the basement pantry, to El Sotano, to pray. He told the story of his expulsion often or telling of the pranks he'd play on unsuspecting relatives where he'd set ladyfinger fireworks on the outhouse windowsill as they sat on the wooden throne. <laughs> it was far easier for me to summon his stories of picking cotton with his grandfather, my great grandpa, when he was too young for public school. I can't say for certain which point sparked those deeper memories, unlike the spry look he'd get as he told his tales of mischief. The fondness in his voice was palpable when he recollected time spent with his grandparents. He'd go into a focused gaze as if to look for something far in the distance, then talk about it as if it had just happened the other day. Like his story of enjoying a hot lunch prepared by his grandmother Teresa when he went to work in the cotton fields with his grandfather Francisco. My dad would recount his preschool years in a childlike manner. He'd go on about everyone's efforts. My mom, she went to put me in school, but they wouldn't take me because my birthday was too late in the year. So she she left me with my grandma Teresa and my grandpa Francisco while she went to work. He'd paint a magnificent picture of these pleasant moments during his early childhood years. My grandpa made me a little basket so I could go with him to pick cotton, a piscar algodon. My grandma would fix us lunch. Sometimes she would make sandwiches, burritos, a thermos of caldo, or whatever. Y vez en cuando she made us tamales. We'd break off the stocks del cotton. They were dry. Ya estaban secos. We'd put them in a pile and light them up. They'd get like coals. We'd put our food there and warm it up. The tamales or burritos, either way. Y el café, I remember the coffee that my grandma nos hacía. Hijo, la estaba pero buena. Coffee, milk, y sugar. Grandma Teresa... She'd be a little heavy on the sugar. <laughs> it was so good, mija. Los tamales medio tostaditos, bien suave. I expected poignant facts. Instead, he'd share calculations and the simple things he noticed. I was around six years old, and I remember that first few weeks of picking. I think it took me almost two weeks, maybe more, to make my 100 pounds. My grandpa Francisco and the other men, they would make their 100 pounds in a day. But they had regular-sized baskets. Mine was little. You know how much they paid for 100 pounds? $3. That was a lot of money for me back then. A movie and Coke was a quarter. I'd be able to see a lot of movies for $3. He was not yet six years old, working the cotton fields, enjoying himself, innocently unaware of the situation. Instead, he was absorbed into his keen observations, the camaraderie of the laborers, And the lovely experience of eating tamales with his grandfather. A meal perfectly prepared by his grandmother. Compelling yet ordinary for that place. That era, esa época. It was the epitome of amistad that made such sweet memories. Mom! Jonathan moaned. Tia Marisa, untie us, David pleaded. I shooed Curtis away to examine how they had been fastened to the swing set. (laughs) They were secured in a combination of knots I had never seen the likes of. Whatever it was they did, I knew it must have been really terrible for my dad to tie them up easily accessible to the dog (laughs) the boys had vivid imaginations but sometimes their idea of creativity was just plain bad my dad received curtis from a friend and thought he would make a good hunting dog but the endeavor was short-lived he didn't retrieve or track very well he'd run aimlessly into the desert Jumped from the back of the truck and needed too much supervision to be anything more than a family pet. He occasionally needed to be tied up to prevent him from running off when the gates were open. Curtis was my dad's companion, and that afternoon, another playmate for Jonathan and David. I wondered if my dad regretted sharing his own stories of tomfoolery with the boys as they ran around the backyard, seeing what ill intentions their imaginations could conjure. Exploring and playing races with Curtis didn't seem like enough fun, and the two little malcriados let their inner maldito get the best of them. The boys loved their grandpa. They were joyfully oblivious that being a rascal is a family trait, along with the long-held tradition of grandparents spending considerable amounts of time with grandkids while moms went to work. It's what we did. It's who we were. Our familia extended far beyond the nucleus of parents and children. It was neighbors, cousins, friends, everyone. It never occurred to me that life could be any different. I suspect as much for both my parents and my great-grandparents. My mom with her abuelita, Bolita, my dad with his grandpa Francisco, the boys with their grandpa Eddie, it takes a barrio. My dad would tell tales with a little glimmer in his eye, recalling his own mischievous youth. When I was your age, I was pero más travieso. After getting the boys untied, I learned the details of the afternoon and precisely what they had done to get themselves attached to the swing set. (laughs) Jonathan and David had grown bored of running around and had decided to include Curtis in their backyard adventures. They put his leash on, led him back to his water bucket which was held up with its handle over a stake to keep it from tipping over, and thought it would be more fun to make him run in circles so that he'd tangle himself up on the post. The boys hadn't counted on their grandpa catching them, nor had the cruelty of the act occurred to either of them. As my dad retold his version of Jonathan and David's misbehaving incident, he made sure to point out the moment when he caught them in the act. Ande traviesos, what are you doing to El Curtis? And explained to me that the boys had been warned about what was going to happen next. When I catch you, me los voy a sonar. You're going to get it. The boys made it worse when they each bolted off in opposite directions. They were no match for their grandpa, whose legs were as long as they were tall, who ran faster than they did, and was strong enough to scoop them up with one hand. An early lesson on staying put, as it was better to wait and accept the consequences rather than trying to run away. One at a time, my dad had tied them up, upside down, at dog height, so they would know how Curtis felt to be trapped and teased. My dad recounted the incident in a matter-of-fact manner. Surprisingly, he wasn't angry. The type of memory this day would create was still in question. He knew the the origins of their mischief. Looking sideways, he whispered under his breath, Chavalos malcriados.
0: That was Marisa Hambleton. Spoiler alert: Henry was the best dog ever. In our last piece, Deborah Sussman looks at life and love through the eyes of a border collie in O. Henry.
5: Every dog owner will tell you that their dog is special. But Henry the Border Collie wasn't just special. Henry was legendary. (laughs) Henry was the first dog I ever knew and loved. That's not why he's legendary. That's just a fact. In my life, I had met dogs, petted dogs. I'd even liked some dogs well enough. But I had always preferred cats. Cats were mysterious and aloof. Dogs were so obvious. (laughs) And sometimes they drooled. And mostly your hands smelled funny after you touched their fur. Also, they could bite you. A dog had tried once as I was racing down to the bus stop at the bottom of the hill where my family lived on a bitter Montreal winter day. I was 15, late for school as usual, lost in my head, making up excuses for why I was late again when a neighbor's Dalmatian flew at me and took a big bite out of what would have been my arm if I hadn't been wearing a puffy-down jacket. The dog's teeth tore the dark blue fabric of the jacket and took a clump of feathers with them. I was shocked, but I also suddenly had an excellent excuse for being late. (laughs) and and dramatic evidence (laughs) I was almost 30 and living in Charlottesville, Virginia when my boyfriend who lived a thousand miles away in a small house in the cornfields of Iowa decided to adopt a dog David was a journalist and an obsessive he gathered information methodically and exhaustively on every subject he undertook in print and in life Before settling on the idea of a border collie, he researched dog breeds and temperament, breeds and training, breeds and geographical location. For months, he entertained the idea of the perfect dog as that idea morphed from wire-haired to long-haired, from terrier to retriever, from mid-sized to larger and back again. And he did all this research pre-Google. The perfect dog in whatever shape or size would be loyal, athletic, and intelligent, much like David. Whether or not David was also going for obsessive, that's what he got. (laughs) Why he decided on a border collie exactly, I don't know. Maybe it had something to do with visiting me and driving out into the rolling green hills of Virginia to the sheep farm where Henry and his siblings frolicked in the grass. Maybe it was because none of his friends had border collies. Whatever the reason, he fell in love with Henry the minute he saw him. I knew David had a soft spot. I had no idea how big it was. Border collies are working dogs. This means they need a schedule and a job to do, or they become neurotic. They are not. Lounge on the couch and watch television dogs. Not unless they've already played frisbee with you for a couple of hours and maybe hiked a mountain or two. (laughs) David knew this going in. He knew that Henry's father was a champion sheep herding dog from Scotland. So Henry would be smart and motivated. And David had already settled on a kind of dog bible for training Henry, written by a group of monks who spent their waking hours praying and training dogs. (laughs) Henry was black and white, mostly with dapples of golden brown, and he had the face of a much older and wiser dog, even as a puppy. Attentive eyes, long, slender nose. The tip of his tail was pale and naked, missing its fur, and this troubled David, but not enough to prevent him from taking the puppy home with us to the condo I shared with my roommate. And David, who was fairly particular about his car, didn't mind when the puppy threw up all over the back seat. (laughs) He was more worried about the dog than he was about his car's interior, which indicated to me how serious he was about caring for this creature. It was the first of many car rides Henry would take with us, up and down the East Coast and back and forth between Iowa and Virginia. When I tell you Henry was brilliant... I am not exaggerating. Some of it was the breed. Border Collies are keen and inquisitive and eager to please. Motivated not by food, although he certainly enjoyed a nice pig's ear, but by praise for a job well done. When Henry was still a puppy, we took him back to the sheep farm where he was born and put him in the field with a few of the farmer's sheep. He was a fraction of their size, but he immediately herded them all into a corner. It was like watching a fish swim. Henry's training routine was thorough and consistent. David taught him to be comfortable in a crate, to fetch and return an object, a ball, a frisbee, a desiccated corn cob, and to poop on command. The command was, let her rip. (laughs) And his friends would threaten to drive out to his little house in the cornfields when he wasn't there and yell, let her rip, Henry! through the mail slot in the front door. (laughs) Henry also learned not to step into the street, any street, without first being told it was okay. He knew all the usual commands, sit, lie down, up, and if you told Henry to shake, instead of giving you his paw, Henry would shake all over the way a dog does when it's just jumped out of the water. Henry, it must be said, was better behaved than most people. I was very proud of Henry. I loved it when my friend Alex said, he's this far from speech. (laughs) I loved it when Henry greeted me at the door. I loved taking Henry for walks in the woods and how incredibly fast and graceful he was. I loved when Henry outran a greyhound at the dog park. I was becoming a dog person. And when David and I broke up and he suggested that Henry might be better off with me in Virginia than couch surfing in New York City with him, I agreed. He loved Henry enough to let him go. And when my parents asked me if I would come home to Denver to spend time with my father, who'd been diagnosed with cancer, Henry came with me. As children, my brothers and I were not allowed to have pets, unless you count goldfish, mice, and gerbils, and I did not. <laughs> when I was 12, I wore my parents down with my begging, and they let me adopt a small gray kitten, but a dog was out of the question. I knew better than to even ask for one, although I did ask out of curiosity and more than once why not? My mother said it was because my father had grown up in small apartments in Europe and wasn't used to dogs. The chemo made my father tired, and he often seemed distracted or sad. He was cordial with Henry, but slightly wary. Gradually, Henry wore him down. He didn't leap or lick or beg, but when my father sat in his chair by the window in the living room, Henry sat next to him with his head right about at petting height, and waited. (laughs) And one day my father patted him on the top of his dark head, gingerly at first, and said, hello, Henry. I like to think it brought him some comfort. Dogs are good at comforting us when people don't know what to do. My father's death crushed me. It was so cruel, and I missed him so much. And back in Virginia, I went through the motions, but I felt lost. One winter night, I was out walking Henry around the neighborhood trying to understand where and how my father had gone. As I walked, I would throw the frisbee for Henry and he would bring it back and place it precisely at my feet as usual. If I was too lost in thought, he'd pick it up and drop it right at my feet again and look me in the eyes as if to say, come on, get it together. Henry had a job to do. And then Henry brought the frisbee back, but not to me. He dropped it a few feet to my left and began looking intently up into nothing, as if someone was standing next to me, someone I couldn't see. And I, who do not necessarily believe in ghosts, realized suddenly and surely that I did not feel alone. I felt my father's presence. I dismissed it as a fluke, as wishful thinking born of grief. And then Henry repeated the performance, dropped the frisbee a few feet away from me and locked eyes with the air. And another time. He would only reluctantly pick the frisbee up and give it to me instead after I asked him repeatedly. He really wanted the invisible person to play with him. Henry came with me and my new husband to Arizona. He adjusted to the heat and to the mostly treeless landscape. He adjusted to the new baby in the house and to our erratic, brand-new parent schedule. The situation improved for him when the baby began to eat solid food, and (laughs) Henry discovered that if he stayed close, delicious bits of people food would rain down from the high chair. Henry and our daughter became inseparable, like siblings from different species. He herded her gently around the house, (laughs) along with our two cats, and his name was one of the first words she ever said. Henny. Henry died at the relatively old age of 14, not suddenly, but slowly, the way healthy dogs do. His death was my daughter's first, and she took it better than I did. I had no idea that losing a dog would feel so much like losing my father. Henry wasn't a pet. He was a member of the family. In the days after we said goodbye to Henry, the house felt strange. The rhythm of my days no longer made sense. There was no dog to feed, to walk, to worry about, to love. I realized that as much as I'd thought we were training Henry all those years, he'd been training us gently and well. I've had other dogs since Henry. I share my home with one now, a rescue dog named Chai, who is as near as we can tell a chuggle. (laughs) Part chihuahua, part pug, part beagle. She is the size, shape, and color of a mostly baked loaf of bread. (laughs) And I love her beyond reason. It's a love tinged with the knowledge that I will have to say goodbye to her, too, eventually, and usher her over what our vet's office refers to as the Rainbow Bridge, into a better place where I imagine she will find Henry sitting with my father and patiently waiting for news of us.
0: That was Deborah Sussman. And that's it for this episode of the Barflies Podcast. Special thanks to my co curator Katie Bravo, podcast producer Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Maroni, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. Learn more about Barflies, including upcoming workshops and performances, at barflies.org.